Hi, folks. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. This is our 59th episode. We are. Wow. What? Wow. Am I wrong? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just thinking like 59. That's it kind of snuck up on up. us. Yeah. Right? I think so. For us, that's, you know, we're getting up there. Yeah. Might be triple digits one day. Actually. That would be so cool. That would be so cool. And hi, today, Dr. Scott. <laughs> hi, Dr. Shiloh. Happy post-Thanksgiving. How's your trip to family Damn. level right now? I need to stop eating meat and cheese. Or not meat and cheese, bread and cheese. Oh I don't God. eat meat anymore, but yeah. We had lobster tails because I'm pescatarian. So we did lobster tails instead of turkey. Oh, jeez. It was great. It only took like 10 minutes to cook. So everyone was up at five making their turkeys. And I'm like, do do do. What should I do now? <laughs> That's awesome. How was your holiday? It was it was great. It was very small and contained at uh, a friend's house who has a huge, like, open air dining room that opens up from their living room. So all of us were able to socially distance, which was really great. Nice. But um, but yeah, there was no pescatarian, no vegetarian. Yes, there were some great vegetables, but that that was not the focus. This was more traditional carnivory. Carnivory. Um, But Dan, my husband, who is like just a phenomenal cook, did this uh, epicurious recipe version of a green bean casserole that's very uh, French with like a a bechamel sauce and sautéed mushrooms. I mean, it and almonds. It's just stupid delicious. And on top, he woke up our 25-year-old starter that we keep asleep in the refrigerator. So he woke that up and made two enormous uh, um, Fugazi-shaped breads. So it's like a... It's Italian. It's focaccia, but uh, shaped like a giant palm leaf. And oh my gosh! It, and there's a, there was a friend of ours who is Italian. Luca was <laughs> like the bread was put up for for dinner, and they were like you know the appetizers were set out, and that dude like jumped on the bread so quick. It was like <laughs> this is real. This is the real stuff. This so is mine. <laughs> Dan was like super impressed. I mean, super uh, you know kind of chuffed about. Yes. Like, oh wow! I impressed an Italian with my bread. Ah, uh, you are the luckiest man. Because you well, married I'm, the best cook. I did marry the best cook. And, <laughs> and as you said, if, if anybody wants, if everybody is looking at a visual, if this is ever posted, um, right behind me is my stationary bike that I finally broke down <laughs> oh, and bought. I see I, it in the box. Not, I know, right? Well, like, look to the see the side. They've got it set up right behind. Um, awesome. And it's great. Yeah. Like, just hopefully I won't have a mess of coronary trying to get you back know what into what cardio got? shape. We just got a row machine. And I love it. Yeah, you know, I'm here mixed things. Like some people say it's the best workout ever, and then I have two people that said they can't get their heart rate up on it. Yeah, I, we're still learning. We're new, okay. so you know, well, I like it so far. Well, so. for total and for and for full body conditioning, it's supposed to be the best. That's what all. If the... it makes my butt and my glutes and my arms sore, then I know something good is happening. All right, that's so, the ju- that's the way I'll you keep judge you posted. it. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh my God. I just, I was like, oh, there's not enough. What am I going to do? And then suddenly yeah, it's like, right. fuck, we could do an entire, we could do an entire Podcast. season, <laughs> literally just a season on how many fucked up therapists there are. So uh, that's I know. So this week's episode is criminal counselors. And it's something, it's one of the uh, subjects that we've been wanting to talk about a lot because there's just tons of 
controversy in our field among the various disciplines about who actually is the gatekeeper in maintaining ethics and laws that are put out by the uh, American Psychological Association as well as the American Psychiatric Association, aware as, the, uh, as a, much as the um, American Medical Association, and then each the state, state boards, yeah. the state boards, like everybody has their rules. Um, you know, Shiloh and I are of the same generation of, of clinicians. Like we, we went to school, very different schools, very different programs, but at a time where it's just drilled into your head that the law is the law. Oh, yeah. And in fact, at my doctoral level and my master's level, the law and ethics classes were taught by attorneys, were either psychologists, either just straight attorneys or attorney uh, psychologists that also had a JD. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. I mean, I, it was, we did have an attorney on our main staff. He was mostly, he did like legal research and those courses. But um, my ethics professor was, she was just, you know, the, the ethics guideline was her Bible. And she drilled that into all of us. And we all wanted to be her. You know, she's the most, the, just the epitome of a rule follower. And she also taught assessment. So everything by the book, you're scoring everything perfectly, you know, just that person. She was perfect for it. Well, the way it's supposed to be. Well, yeah, of course. Because because ethics is difficult anyway. Ethics itself is not concrete. It has to Mm -hmm. be, it's, it's requires a clinician to have insight into their own motivations as well as what the federal local professional organizations, what everybody says, like it's a, it's a big deal to put all those things together and requires you to be on top of it. And believe me, I've got, I've had colleagues and classmates that, nope, that's not, that doesn't seem like it's a priority to them. Yeah. I, I I think it is about time to do this episode. I mean, we've done cannibal cops and killer nurses. We need to maybe bring our own profession to light a little bit. Well, and let's, let's just be completely transparent that you have, had to yank me from the edge of the void because there's <laughs> we could do we could probably do half a season we could probably do about six or seven episodes because there oh, are sure. so many examples of really egregious uh, activities so but for the sake of time we boiled it down to just a handful of particularly disturbing examples that we wanted to go over so I mean, we're going to start with um, a, a really famous one in the news right now, Michelle Boudreaux-Deegan, who is a psychologist uh, in Washington State who fatally shot her seven-year-old twins uh, and then killed herself following a custody dis- dispute with her ex-husband. We'll briefly touch on the spider pages, which is the disciplinary actions that are posted quarterly within the state of California through the California Association of Marriage and Family Therapist magazine. And then Shiloh, what is the case that you wanted to touch on? Um, I definitely want to touch on Nancy Salzman from Nexium. So we know oh, that's big right now. Yeah. Everyone watched The Vow over the last couple months. And when I heard that she was a therapist, it made me very angry. So I really want to talk about her and if she's a therapist or not. Interesting. Well, yeah, yeah. there's, there's, there's um, some of the examples we talk about. I had to dig pretty far to make sure that the people were actually licensed in the discipline that they were described as, because as much as I have respect for journalists, there's a lot of 
people that don't understand the difference between masters and doctoral level clinicians, the licensure that's required, you know, and it's, 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 um, you know, even when I was working at the MFT level, I would have people say doc. And I would, I felt like I was just a broken record having to say, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a doctor. I don't have my doctorate yet to the point where they were like, kind of, they wanted to brush it away, but I was always in the position of like, I haven't earned that title yet. And I want to be really careful so that nobody ever can come back and say, oh yeah, he was presenting himself as a psychologist way before he ever graduated. Right. Or the flip side, someone can have a doctor in something completely unrelated to medicine or mental health and then call themselves Dr. So-and-so and people just have the assumption that it's related to the health field. Right. And it could also be the type of doctorate that you can get from an online diploma mill for $2,000. Sure. You know, yeah, and those, that too. Those places actually exist. So why do people go in the field of mental health? What hmm. do you think? I mean, I, I gathered some notes, but like what just off the top of your head, why do you, what do you think draws people in? You know, this is something that's kind of hard for me because I feel like um, we always kind of go back to ourselves and our own experiences. And I feel like mine was so different than the norm, but I don't know if it is. And so what would I think is the normal, quote unquote, normal reason people go into mental health? Um you know, I see people that have a lot of struggles themselves and or grew up around others that had challenges in the area of mental health. And so it's kind of a calling to better understand that. Oh, I agree. I think that's a great perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, that actually falls into... Are there one a of the categories, typologies, if you will. Yeah, I mean, these aren't official typologies. These are the ones that I kind of put together because uh, unless somebody did, and, the, and this would be a fascinating study to do, if somebody would like put together a survey and you know send it out to a couple of thousand clinicians at different levels and see what their motivations were. But mm-hmm. you know, first of all, just going back to what we've touched on in previous episodes, in the U.S., you can be licensed uh, as a mental health professional under mainly about four classifications, three are at the master's level and one is at the doctoral level. The three at the master's level would be uh, with a master's in social work, a licensed clinical social worker who could also work in a psychiatric capacity and their training becomes sort of like what they call a psychiatric social worker, much as although you and I are clinical psychologists, we call ourselves forensics because we generally work primarily in the forensics area. You can also work as a marriage and family therapist. That's called an MFT. It's sort of just sort of the acronym that's used most broadly here on the West Coast and across, but it can be called something different across the U.S. And even in some states, master's level clinicians are able to call themselves psychologists. They can't call themselves doctor, but they can call themselves mm-hmm. psychologists, which is very confusing for me. Because in right, California, that's a big no-no here. Oh, out here it is a huge no-no. And you can you can actually get fined for that pretty right. um pretty heavily. So we have a social worker, we have the MFT. In some states, working at the master's level is called an LPCC, licensed professional clinical counselor. And then um There are other iterations, but basically these are the four ways you get licensed in various states based on their requirements. So again, kind of circling back around, why would people go into this field? And yours is encapsulated by one of them, which I kind of call the wounded healer. 
mm-hmm. like people who have been through experiences themselves, like they may have grown up in a family environment where they realized that there was mental illness or mental instability or emotional instability, or it might've been someone who they themselves were affected by the environment that they grew up with, or they've had long-term problems with um, mood disorders and they want to help others, but they're also on their own journey of helping themselves. Yes. And There are even a couple of really famous cases or famous individuals here in the U.S. that are very, very highly renowned uh, research psychologists that have uh, diagnoses of schizophrenia, Mm -hmm. which is incredibly, I mean, that's mind-blowing that someone would be able to achieve that because we know as clinicians that the trigger for almost any kind of break, whether it be a bipolar break, a psychotic break, is stress. Right. And putting yourself through doctoral level of education is is very intense. It is the least. very stressful. Or you have um, individuals like Marsha Linehan who come up with entire modalities of treatment for individuals with personality disorders and struggles like she had herself and nothing was working. Right. <laughs> she comes up with DBT. Yeah. And, um, you know. Very Marsha, Marsha Linehan is is a fascinating, fascinating example that you use because she identifies as an individual with borderline personality disorder. And borderline is, I wouldn't say it's notoriously hard to treat. It is, it is difficult and it requires buy-in from the patient. But Linehan developed this modality that is a, was a combination of everything that existed at the time. And mm-hmm. basically made it work. And it's it's right. amazing, especially if you watch tapes of her working with borderline clients. It's like it's yeah. not it's not all huggy feely type stuff. It's really oh, difficult. No. Which really says a lot about the 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 client that's willing to engage in that that's gotten to the point where well, you know, their lives have become intolerable. So they have to find a way out. And this for many is the only way out. So that's kind of comes around um or that's the example that sort of sets up for the wounded healer. But I also look at the scientist academic and some people are drawn to it because they're fascinated by observing and understand the entire spectrum of human behavior and what exactly motivates us intrinsically to become who we are or who we want to be. And those are the people that, that make you and I drool like the, the, they create <laughs> data Mm-hmm. that we eat up like they create data they create studies that look at the things that we want to know more about and then sometimes that data and that stuff is then translated by other clinicians into treatment modalities or other forms of research or you know extrapolated into other areas yeah i think that's definitely I mean, that feels like my my journey when I finally decided to do this and just choosing psychology as a field of study at all. You know, even before I wanted to continue to pursue psychology, when I thought I was still staying in law enforcement, I was definitely that fascinated observer. Like, let me sit in a group with nine individuals who were previously incarcerated for sexual offenses and see what they have to say. I want to hear it. I want to know everything about it. And then starting to get out of the observer role and get into the clinical piece was just, you know, furthered my fascination and where I started to hone a actual craft around it. Right. 
So admittedly, like I said, I, these are the categories that I've come up with so that they're mainly just three broad ones. And there's many others, I think, that I'm probably not including. But certainly in some of the examples that we talk about today, uh, the narcissist slash controller. And there are people who go who specifically go into positions of power in order to create an environment where they are in control. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That may be an area where someone thrives. There's a lot that a lot of research that is looks at elementary and junior high school teachers. And there can be a, a high correlation of people that want to have a captive audience and be in control. And they're not necessarily um, succumbing to any kind of narcissistic urges, but that's something that drives them and it drives them. That may be the drive motivation for them to be the educator that they want to be. But unfortunately, there are some examples of people that really, really abuse their power. And we're going to talk about a couple of those today in a shameless plug for another well-to-do podcast on the Wondery Network. If you it doesn't have, need any plugging from it us. It doesn't really. need any <laughs> plugging, right? They're, they're doing fine, believe me. But if you haven't listened to The Shrink Next Door, uh, I highly, highly recommend it. It is a a really frightening example of how uh, a pure, pure narcissist uh, can use the manipulative techniques they learn from their education in mental health to guide the path of people's lives in ways that are not healthy. So I won't give that away because the story. Yeah, that's an understatement. Unhealthy. It's, you know, it's criminal. It's manipulative. It's It's criminal on on a number of levels. Yeah. 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 I I just had my mouth open agape the whole time listening to that. Yeah. You can't believe it. So, I mean, the big, the big surprise about all of this is that there are very few gatekeepers in our profession. There are laws and there are guidelines and there are ethics and there are state by state considerations, but there's really nobody out there being the gatekeepers. And there's a reason for that. So the analogy I use is that if someone has a desire to become an architect, you've got to have some mad skills before you can even think about pursuing it. Much in the way, if you're going to be a medical doctor, you you really need to have the grades to support it. Mm -hmm. Well, architecture, you have to have an understanding of design, of math, and then that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's all these other things about building safe, load-bearing structures. So every legit and reputable architectural program in colleges across the U.S., you aren't guaranteed a place in that program. You get in and then you're evaluated at the end of each year as to whether or not you will be allowed to move forward. So one would think that as important as designing a bridge or prescribing a medication, that you would put the same emphasis on someone who's going to be working with the most intimate details of someone's mind and behavior and psyche. And that doesn't. I mean, there are so many programs that you just get in that don't even require, what do we call GRE. it? The GRE, that's it. Right. So, Well, it's, it's, it's the same thing that feeds the whole stigma about mental health, right? It's, the, it's that you can't see the injury on the outside. And, it, you know, a bridge collapse, you're talking about innocent people that 
could have their lives lost or in medical school, we're talking about life or death potentially. And if you break someone mentally or are not not giving them the best treatment because you're not competent, like you said, it's it, that's not measured throughout the training. Um, and I think it's because we can't really calculate that in a tangible way when that harm right. is done. Um, except for like, we can put these rules and these ethics into place and sort of see how often that's violated, but that's not even looking at the outcome or the harm. It's not. I mean, I, I, to give use a broad example, I remember being in a supervision at a training site many years ago. And one of our colleagues who was, and this was a place where we worked behind uh, two-way mirrors and we were observed either you were, you know, many of your sessions were taped, either audio or video recorded. And then sometimes you were sitting behind uh, a two-way mirror with literally 25 people on the other side watching you. So this was a smaller group. It was about uh, five of us observing one of our colleagues. And after the session, we, it, it was a problem. It was a problem because the clinician not only, I mean, if they, if they were nervous, that would have been one thing. And they may very well have been nervous. They weren't even doing the basic protocol of reflective listening, which is sort of the, the basic foundational yeah. underpinning of, of what the work that we do. Right. And it was really uncomfortable because now we're supposed to come back and give feedback. And there was another individual who was wonderful in our uh, group. And this individual was trying to really couch it carefully. And they said, you know, I just wasn't sure I was really seeing a connection between you and your client. And our other colleague, the one that we had just observed, stood up, started sobbing, said, I don't feel safe in here, and then ran out. So couldn't take any feedback at all. Like a no softball feedback. Total like, softball. Yeah. Total yeah. softball. And you know, that's I just use that as an example of like that's not gonna happen in an architectural school oh, or a medical God, school. No. You know, it's right, just not right. it's just not on any level. And you know, I have I've actually witnessed that. That's was that was the first time, but not the last time that I witnessed something like that. So, you know, we need mental health clinicians. We need um really well-trained mental, mental health clinicians, and we need really well-trained ethical mental health clinicians. But in a, when we live in this Western world that still does have a great stigma about mental health, we don't, we don't put the money toward it that we should. There should be paid positions, paid internships, and instead of basically us having to work in indentured servitude, right. you know, work thousands of hours for free. I mean, literally thousands of mm -hmm. hours just mm -hmm. to be able to do, be able to sit for your licensure exams. That all comes right. out of your pocket. And I, I think if these um, companies or clinics were investing money into the person, if it was a paid internship position, it, it's an investment. So you would be taking their training more seriously. You would be guiding them better so they would become a better clinician. Um it would just, yeah, I think it would change so much. I mean, I, I remember being terrified of, am I 
going to have to go through something like that, like after tape record my sessions or be observed through the window. Um, and our, our program didn't have us do that with the tape recording at least. And then since I worked in primarily forensic settings, a lot of that wouldn't fly anyway because like probation or parole wouldn't sign off on it. Right. Um, but, um, but I, I know why I was terrified. I was terrified because I didn't feel like I had the proper training mm. at the time. And, and that came later. I think that I don't, I honestly don't think I got the best training until we were in our internship together in our final year. So I kind of faked it until then. I don't know. <laughs> no, I worked well, with what I had. I worked. I with think what you I had. worked with what you had because when we did the the few times that we did group together, I I could tell that you had skills. So, and I'm very, as you know, I'm very critical. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, there are some things um, that I wanted to talk about, like that are just three points before we jump into cases about. The, the basic points or the basic tenets of ethical treatment. But did you have a, did you have an observation that you wanted to make? Well, I just, it, looking at these. So now I'm realizing these are like Scott's typologies of why people go into mental health. But, you know, I know your story of how you got into it, but what do you think your motivation was? Uh, God. Nobody's asked it that Not particular way. Not that it has way. to be one of these three, but well, I mean, look, I, I will. I am completely the wounded healer, okay. and okay. and that is my. I, I started out as the wounded healer, you know, at the at the MFT level, and then once I got into the doctoral program and really immersed myself in research, that was like a whole different part of my brain got turned on that had never been turned on before. Yeah. So I, I, I became, I'm, you know, I, I think I became a different person mm -hmm. or I became a better version of myself much as you do when you're in a long-term positive relationship with a partner, you ultimately you should be coming, should be becoming a better version of yourself. Yeah. And I feel like this education in this field did that for me. Ultimately it was about, I think it would be interesting. I think I would like it. You know, the my mentor at the time who was pushing me toward it was saying, you would be really good at this. That was really hard for me to believe, mm -hmm. but I trusted it. And I also was looking for something. There was also a practical aspect to it of after having worked for two decades in entertainment, I was really ready for something that was steady. Yeah. And I was going to find a way to make it steady, even at the master's level, whether it was private practice or working with a community agency or something. So sure. there were a lot of different forces for me. Yeah. I, I think I turned into the wounded healer after I, well, after I was in um, grad school, because when I was in my fourth year of grad school is when I really probably experienced the biggest trauma of my life on the job. Right. And so to be able to process that by learning more about it and kind of diving into the research around PTSD and critical incidents in law enforcement and, and how one reacts in that situation um, and, and post incident. Uh, definitely. I mean, that was me just trying to figure out what was going on with me. So, so look, the, the probably within the first one to two weeks of when you and I met, you told me about this. Mm -hmm. Like that's how kind of quickly you and I connected. 
Right. And I was like fascinated and horrified and, and frightened. Like, as you told me that story, because it's a really chilling story and you were so matter of fact about it. Oh, I think I still had to be, that was even, that was what two years after incident. Were you doing, so were you doing the cop thing? Do you think? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think definitely just like spitting out the facts of what it was. Um, because I, I think it, took me a lot longer than that to process even more, even be able to talk. I still like, I talk about that. I kind of have two stories that I tell (laughs) one's kind of the, the easy version to tell, um, that's less controversial. That's less, um, I don't know, disturbing if this is the right word, I guess it is for me. And this is all for me, not for the other person. Right. Right. And then I have like, my real story of what really happened, how I was really feeling. And, you know, that that's become easier to tell over the years for sure. But you definitely have your version that you just like tell people when they're like, oh, you've been in a shooting. Tell me about that. Because <laughs> everyone thinks it sounds cool. Oh, I was hor- <laughs> like, well, I, not, maybe I not just, everybody. <laughs> I felt like I just had this look of horror and fear, like it, like it was happening at the time. I mean, like not yeah. like you were not being dramatic. I was doing what I, I was doing the over overly involved empath thing where I was feeling it way too much. <laughs> and then even like three years or several years later, when somebody that doesn't know you was recounting their version of what they thought the story was, oh, right. I went off on them. Yeah. <laughs> I because went law enforcement off. is the smallest world ever. It's the smallest world. And I was like, you don't have all the facts. And <laughs> here is... <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm like, you know, pulling up data on the computer going, you need to read this. Oh, God, I totally you became my narcissistic extension in that moment. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say up until probably the last few years. And, and I attribute this to being in a police psychologist position because I've obviously learned even more in the fact that I yeah. am actively treating individuals for the same similar type of trauma at times. Um that I'm able to tell the story without getting like hot when I tell it, yeah. or my heart rate, you know, yeah. racing. Um, and I did, I, I did not have post-traumatic stress disorder like that. I don't meet the definition of the criteria for but it. You, but that doesn't mean that you're not capable of dissociating because I do totally. that about my, my two incidents in my people will be really put off when I'm telling my story. Or if mm-hmm. I, if I'm sharing that particular thing with them, they'll be like, I don't understand how you're so calm right now. And I, it took me years to realize, Oh, I, I allow myself to be dissociated from it. Like you were saying earlier, and it's almost like, you know, you, what you were talking about almost had sort of an object relations, um, uh, paradigm take on it in that there's a story that we share with the people around us. That's in that sort of wider concentric circle of our, peer group. And then there's the one that when we're comfortable accessing it with people we trust, that is a way more intense and personal version of it, right? Yes. Yes. Good way. Good way to... Oh, so let's talk about vicarious trauma. No, I'm just kidding. Right. We're gonna <laughs> no, move but right let's, let's, let's hit your, your basic points of ethical treatment. Yeah. So the, the thing that I just want people to understand is that there are there's a process that goes on with a client that comes to you when someone engages in therapy and they're willing 
to give it a try and then start the laborious process of opening up to a total stranger and building rapport uh, with a clinician that they trust. And they develop generally what we call a term called transference. And that's where the clinician that the client is sitting with, the clinician becomes sort of a movie screen that the patient or the client can then project a lot of their emotions on. They can project interpersonal relationships, intrafamilial relationships, mother roles, father roles, authority figures. And that's really important because the clinician is supposed to hold the containment for the relationship and for the treatment and allow that to happen, including being the recipient of a lot of anger. I mean, that's one Mm -hmm. of the things that we don't really talk about a lot as clinicians is that we really hold a lot of anger and pain for our clients. Yeah. And then the flip side of that is called countertransference, where you really, as a clinician, you are responsible for monitoring your own countertransference, which means how do you personally feel about your client and what is getting triggered for you. So like one of the things that I was taught in supervision, which was probably one of the most valuable things is that really be quote unquote careful and aware of when you have a client that consistently elicits from you positive countertransference. Because they could be a wonderful person and you feel that they're a wonderful person, but you're feeling that they're a wonderful person can get in the way of treatment. Yep. So you have to be really careful about it. This, this is something that I actually sort of attribute to you to helping me solidify a little bit, even it it was post-doc, but I think I was, you know, still in my quote unquote, like earning my hours, but I remember calling you to consult about a client, um, a forensic client, and just kind of raving about how much I liked this client, despite what he had done. And you really had such like a good way of sort of stopping me and saying like, listen to what you're saying, listen how you're talking about this person. And I don't even know why I had called you in the first place or what we were consulting about, really. But clearly, it needed to be done, and I knew that, and that's why I called you about it. And you were able to have me reflect on a lot of the things that I was saying. And I was still kind of like, yeah, but but trust me, I thought about it later, even post-conversation with you. Oh, absolutely. Like, I mean, what's I going would, on here, you know? But I wouldn't... It's like, uh, I wouldn't... Uh, most of the clinicians and, and friends that I have that are in the field, I... I know that they're capable of hearing that and and integrating it into their treatment, which is so important. And I also know mm-hmm. some people that aren't, um, which really worry me. But yeah, yeah, and you know, there was another time that you did the same thing with for me when a colleague who got into a lot of trouble, and I immediately got like I was I knew that I was stuck in this place of only seeing one potential side of it. Mm-hmm. And you did the same thing for me when I consulted. And it wasn't even like he's a client, he was a colleague. Right. You were able to say, yes, he's a great guy, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's not capable of doing something. Yeah. Bullet point A, bullet points B and C. And I was like, whoa, okay, I needed to hear that from somebody I trust. So mm-hmm. that was very important. Yeah, but countertransference is so important because it's 
it's it like Scott said, it's just being aware of what triggers you, what is your own stuff. Uh, uh, some clients might remind you of people in your own personal life that impact you in certain ways. And you have to be able to realize when that's affecting you and own it and think about it and process it and consult with other people about it so that it does not impact the treatment in a negative way right. for the client. Because that's what they're relying on, right? Yes, of course, we are all people too, but we can't bring our stuff to the table so that it's, you know, impacting why they're there. Right. And it, it's not only positive, you know, like, yeah. yes, positive countertransference can get in the way because that can obfuscate what might actually be going on for the client. Maybe this is the way they walk through the world mm-hmm. with this unrealistic positivity about them that, that that is a defense mechanism from keeping the world around them and the people they are close to keeping those people in the periphery unaware of the pain that the individual is in. And then there's sure. also negative Countertransference too, where you can just like, oh my god, I can't stand her. I've got to sit in a in this chair oh, yeah. every week for fifty minutes, and but then you have to you take a step back and you go, oh wait, I'm experiencing what the rest of the world experiences about this person, and that is an indicator or a factor in what challenges her and why she's here in the first place. Or I'm experiencing this because of oh that old friend I used to have that acted like this. And that's my thing. Like I need to very much. That's a good one too. So it, it could totally be based on just your own personal experience, not necessarily their, um, you know, their pathology coming out that everyone else sees too. Right. So, uh, so counter-transference and transference, very, very important concepts. The, another thing is that the clinician, in the treatment protocol is really responsible for holding appropriate boundaries and appropriate boundaries are interpersonal, but they're also very, very practical. You don't go into business with one of your clients. You don't borrow money from a client. You don't barter with a client except under extreme, extreme circumstances that the majority of us don't have anymore, which is, you know, you're the only therapist in a rural area in a town that only has 50 people. Like yeah. that just doesn't really exist, and especially in today's world with teletherapy. Exactly. Like you can, I can basically provide services to anybody that lives in the state of California because I'm licensed for residents of California. Yeah, no longer is the only therapist in town trading therapy for having their barn repainted. Like, right. Yeah. Just... Yeah. But that's a good example of like because what happens when? Wait, but but doc, doc, I'm going to paint your barn. I'm going to paint your barn. Let me do that. Oh, that's great. And then they do like a completely shitty job on the barn. It's like right. oh, that's going to be a clinical issue. Yeah. And that's and... that's no insult to barn holders, barn older owners, or <laughs> barn painters. I don't don't mean that at all. But this was huge. I mean, especially for us in forensic, because it's about working with a, a highly manipulative manipulative population. Right. For a lot of them. Um, and they're going to try and cross boundaries, be it, you know, something financial, something um, sexual, favors. Um, God, the list could go on. But this, you know, the and I'm sure you working in a prison, I just worked on the outside after they were finished. But, you know, anytime someone would come into my office and say, hey, doc, I need a favor. I would even just change the language. I would say, I don't do favors, but what do you need? Like, let's talk about like what your, how to get your needs met. And if we can do that in a fair way, 
where, you know, I'm not breaking the rules for you, but then not someone else. Right. And you can't hold anything over my head. Well, and that's, that's a very important concept too, that language is just so important in the work that we do. You know, it's always being aware and consistent and aware of our, our, the words we use, the power that those words have so very important. Um, The last point I wanted to make is that, uh, you know, I work with really wonderful psychiatrists who are medical doctors that focus primarily on mental health conditions and the medications and treatments that are needed for that. But medical doctors are psychiatrists are not trained except for some that go and pursue it and like, okay, I'm going to go get my PhD in psychology, or I'm going to go immerse myself in emotionally focused therapy so that I have a, another way of communicating with my clients. Most of them don't. They do a little bit of talk therapy where they let the client vent. They talk about symptomology because symptomology is the main thing that the medical model is going to address. So I just wanted to set that up because one of the examples we give a little bit later Mm -hmm. on is somebody that came from a medical background. So what do you think goes wrong? (laughs) Um, I think a lot of it is little by little. Um, like behavioral drift? Yeah, behavioral drift. So, you know, you you cross a very tiny ethical boundary, perhaps, that doesn't seem like a big deal. Um, the therapist could sort of talk themselves into why they're doing it, even. Um, getting into their own cognitive distortions to explain away their behavior or why they've done something, which is the the sort of natural defensive way to do it. But then they don't go any deeper. And, um, yeah, I, I just think it's, it's little by little and get desensitized to what they're doing. Cause if they do it, um, with one person, then it could get worse. If they're doing it with, you know, one person, then the next client, the next client, and the next client, it just becomes like sort of regular behavior at that point and no oversight. Like no one's ever calling them on it. They keep it in a vacuum. No they're not telling anyone. Yeah. 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 But I think that you're saying something super important in that you're talking about, in that particular scenario, it's someone that the 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 hard edges of the ethical and legal boundaries have been sanded away or they've worn away. Mm-hmm. You know, it's drifted from what it's supposed to be. And then again, there are examples of people that we're going to talk about today, a couple of them, that were that from the beginning. Like there was oh, yeah. no behavioral drift. They were like, clearly something was going on with them from the beginning. So, I mean, one of the things that we'll touch on with my example, the first one is I, I call it the stress therapist and the stress therapist that loses control. And, and why is there so much stress? Because like you said, perfectly, people forget we're human too. You know, a lot of times people will look at therapists as something almost supernatural because we are observers of human behavior. People are always afraid that you're analyzing them. The truth yep. is a lot of times we are. But we're choosing not to let that perspective on who we're talking to in the given moment, we are making an active choice not to let that affect how I'm talking to you. Sure. But like any profession, right? If you're in a situation where you apply or your your talent can be applied, everyone's going to do that naturally. I mean, you can't filter those thoughts out of your head. It's just people don't like it because... Our thoughts, our, our our judgments have to do with their thoughts and their yeah. psyche. So it, it it's off-putting. So, I mean, one of the things here in this bizarre year of 2020 and COVID that we're all dealing with 
is that mental health clinicians are reaching, especially the ones in private practice, are reaching a level of burnout that probably has never been seen in the 21st century. It just has, I mean, for a long time, because we haven't had in the Western world this type of stress at the same time that we've actually acknowledged that, yes, individuals within the populace of the Western world have a need for emotional and mental health support. Mm -hmm. So that's particularly something that is wearing as well as the example we're talking about today with uh, Michelle, where there was a stress therapist, there probably wasn't a gatekeeper there for her own challenges and it ended up in a horrific tragedy. Um, Can you talk a little, go go ahead. I I was just going to say, so, so kind of this idea of the stressed therapist meaning because they themselves are impacted, they're making poor decisions. Um, is that what you're saying? That just in, in their ethics and... Well, or they, they are led to a place of, of uh, actions that are completely out of character for them because their clients are all simultaneously challenged by the same thing. Like you can have in private mm-hmm. practice, a wide range of clients coming to you. But certainly one of the things that we talk about in the field right now is everybody that's been sort of marginally okay, you know, and high functioning in the world, they're yeah. actually starting to exhibit um, like they've been containing themselves, their own mental health issues. And those are starting to wear thin. Uh-huh. You know, the financial stressors, the social distancing, the isolation, the fear of infection, the political strife, the political dissent. I mean, there's a lot going on that whether or not you even acknowledge those things actually exist, you are impacted by them. So a therapist now has like a triple dose of dealing with these emerging things. And if they're not taking care of themselves. Right. Right. Where's that going to go? Where is that? We even use the, I think the Freudian term is cathect. Where are you going to dispel the lightning? Where is the, what's going to be the lightning rod mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. all of those problems for a clinician, unless they themselves are taking time to engage in all of those coping skills that we tell clients to do all the time. Right. So, so we as therapists are under the same amount of stress that our clients are on top of their regular stuff. And we're just immersed in it more than than normally we're immersed in our clients' problems because now it's also our problem. I feel like it is. I don't want to draw too... I mean, I don't want to draw a parallel so far as to say it's like, it's like, you know, look at our, our medical staff. Look at the nurses that are on the front lines and going in every single day mm -hmm. to these COVID wards. You know, never have they had to deal with this level of nonstop work. Yeah. And then there's always the chance that if they miss one part of their PPE protocol, that they could get infected. I feel like there's not, it's not a direct parallel. So please don't, don't come after me, but but there's a version of that in mental health. If you don't take care of yourself, if you're not really, really careful, you too can be susceptible to that behavioral drift. Yeah. Well, in our, um, where I work, our self-referred, uh, our self-referrals are up 68% since COVID. Yeah. Which is crazy. I mean, that's... Where I work, we actually, since COVID, our engagement is higher than it's ever been via telehealth. That was the great thing that happened is like, 
who knew that going to telehealth would actually allow people to engage more in the community? Like, because now they don't have to worry about getting across town with all these various, you know, um, responsibilities on their schedule. This is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when we talk about someone who's stressed and because of their work, there is this concept of vicarious trauma that we sort of apply to anybody who in their job is being exposed to any sort of trauma. So whether you're an ER nurse or you're a clinician and you're hearing people's stories of trauma or reading about it in a forensic report, you can be an attorney reading this. You can be a um, the nurse that responds only to sexual assaults at the hospital. You know, you're anyone who is witnessing it firsthand, doctors, firefighters, EMTs, cops, um, or if you're getting it secondhand, you're reading about it, you're hearing about it from the victim or the perpetrator, or you're seeing it in photographs or evidence, or even, you know, we, we talk about everybody touched by the criminal justice system, jury members who have to hear stuff or see um, images or anything like that. If you are exposed to those traumas over and over again, you're susceptible to vicarious or secondary trauma, which means you yourself can start exhibiting symptoms of trauma or post-traumatic stress disorder or, you know, many stress symptoms that follow traumatic or critical um, incidents. So like, don't, you know, don't they do that with law enforcement who work specifically in child endangerment and child ex- sexual exploitation, exploitation, because it's so triggering. What? Don't they try and, and, um, what's the word? Not shuffle, but rotate people in and out from that position. Ideally that that should be done. Um, and, and for a lot of positions, you know, because that it's just so awful and it's visual. So you're seeing it. Um, but the the decision-making piece behind that is like, okay, you get someone who's finally really good at their job and become an expert in it, and then you're going to rotate them out. But really, it's for the benefit of their own mental well-being. Right. So, yeah, generally, at least something like that is happening. Where I work, We those individuals also get an annual debriefing, no matter what, every year. And, of course, if there's something that's particularly it's all horrific and harmful, but if there's something that just is kind of one of those cases that seems out of the norm bad, then they would get um, a debriefing for that to kind of undermine or undercut um, any of those further symptoms manifesting. Okay. Well, and so moving it back to clinicians, I think there would definitely be a parallel between that kind of, that kind of trauma. Um, The stats are not good. (laughs) The stats are not good. Looking overall at mental health professionals, uh, what we see is that people in our field kill themselves at an abnormally high rate. And psychiatrists die by suicide at rates about twice those expected of physicians. I think I really think that that has to do with what I referred to earlier is that we are taught to take care of ourselves. As clinicians. Now, now, whether or not you heed that and take that training in is is a different matter, but we certainly are given that um, support. I don't really see that happening as much in the training for psychiatrists. Um, 
Divorce rates among psychiatrists is 51% higher than the general population. 60% of mental health professionals have suffered clinically significant levels of depression at some point in their lives. Wow. 60%. Yeah. Now, back in the 60s, when they started actually looking at this data, which is interesting that they, you know, that's that's a good bit of time ago um, that they actually started looking at this. So it's very important. The suicide rates amongst male psychologists was slightly below that of the general population, but female psychologists had suicide rates nearly three times that of the general population. Oh, my God. Because that, I mean, that in the general population, men are way more likely to die by suicide than women. Yeah, I I think this is interesting, and I wish there was more information to dive into, because if that was looked at in the 60s, I think that there's also uh, gender role norms and and acculturation issues regarding uh, gender and sex that probably played a lot to do a lot with this. I mean, I think it was a very, well, I don't think I know for a fact that at the time, psychology was very male dominated at that time. uh, Whereas now it has become primarily female dominated. I would even hypothesize that they may not even have uh, categorized some of those male deaths as suicide because of the stigma attached to it, but would have attached it to women because the 60s very interesting time <laughs> that is a great observation that's a really great observation and i i i think that would bear that theory would bear out that hypothesis. it was accidental he was just cleaning his gun right right he slipped and fell on that tie knotted around his yes closet poll um let's see what else do we have about this female psychologists are at a higher risk category than male psychologists for depression suicidal ideation and completed suicide Wow. Yeah. And Again. then looking at some data from 1970, what, when going back to that stat about higher suicide rates and the psycholo- female psychologist being three times of the general population, but the rate among males is not higher than expected by chance, which I thought was very interesting. Interesting way to word it. Also. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if that goes back to what you were saying about how they, you know, maybe they were loosey goosey and how they were looking at it. Mm, yeah. In males Suspect versus females. All of that. That's, that's yeah. Yeah. So there was also an APA American psychological association had, they have a lot of specialized divisions that really are great because psychology is such a huge spectrum. And um, one of these groups is focused on troubled psychologists, which I was not aware of, but I'm now like all about, I want to go see if it's still a thing Mm -hmm. Uh, because this was back in the late seventies. There was a Dr. Peter Nathan at university of Iowa said that the APA hasn't released any relevant data on distressed psychologists who commit suicide. And that's his term commit suicide since about 1970. And he asks why. And his answer is that the APA doesn't want anyone to know that there are distressed psychologists. Well, especially if they're a a former member of the APA, that totally makes sense with how political they are. Right. Ooh, they're so political. Yeah. I, (laughs) I get, I mean, I, yeah, I wish that yeah, organization let's, let's did more. Let's just feed more into the stigma by saying that we're not impacted when we're trying to get people to just acknowledge that this is normal life to have exactly. these struggles. Come on. 
Wow. Interesting statistics. Um, I think it's also, we also need to talk about sex because like with all crimes, um, sex can be a motivator and also is a huge reason why clinicians sometimes get in trouble. So much so that there's a a pamphlet called Therapy Never Includes Sex. One of my favorite pamphlets. (laughs) Can we just like, so we have to put a pin in this. This issue is so prevalent that they literally had to go and make a brochure Right. That's like like graphics and like, uh-huh. you know, you know, really well produced. It's a PDF version that you can print out and fold and everything. And it's required by state law. Yes. That it, that it, has it we to make be it accessible. Access. Yeah. Yes. I will put a link in the show notes, but it's called Therapy Never Includes Sex. And it's actually it's a it's a pamphlet, it's a reference for clients. So when I worked with sexual offenders, actually once a year, I would bring copies to everyone in my group and we would all read through it together. And they'd be like, we know doc, we can't try and have sex with you. (laughs) And I'm like, (laughs) this is going to be a really good lesson in boundaries and sexual behaviors and appropriate (laughs) relationships, but we would review it. Um, But yeah, it's supposed to be like available in the lobby or if someone asks for it, it should be behind the counter so they can give one to anyone at any sort of clinical setting. And one of the reasons that it was produced, not only is because that it happens, but because so many clinicians were coming back to their governing boards and going, uh, my, my new client came to me because their last therapist sexually abused them. Yeah, they had sex with their last therapist and they won't believe me that it's wrong, which is a therapeutic issue. If you're like this person can't admit that they were taken advantage of in that way. So like this is a way to make it official so that you can hand this to this person. And even even in the brochure version, it's great. I mean, it's great to be able to say, look, this is a lot for you to have on your plate right now. I want you to have Mm -hmm. this and go and read it. And we're going to talk about it next week. Yeah. So basically, like it, it, it tells the client about their rights some warning signs to look for, like behaviors your therapist should not be engaging in, um, reactions to sexual misconduct by a therapist, how you might feel, what that might bring up for you, and then essentially like what action you can take if that was ever an issue. Um, did you ever have a client who had been previously sexually under sexual misconduct by a former therapist? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it, was, it was really shocking. It would, Yeah, that's a great word. Um, it it's it's just it's challenging for me on a number of levels because i don't want to think that people would do that i know like i just don't like i don't want to have a world view that accepts that people who came into this profession would would do that and the reality is that there there are people not only that um, fall prey to their own behavioral drift in the way that you talked about before, because they're not taking care of themselves and they end up, mm-hmm. you know, taking advantage of someone else, but also because there are some people who actively went into this field to be able to manipulate clients into that position. I, I true. Yeah. True. That's disturbing to me. And uh, you know, the, the whole reason also that, you know, I saw this is really important to literally like review annually with my clients was because a lot of times this was their first time in therapy. They were mandated to therapy. So it's not like they were just choosing to come see a therapist. 
And a lot of times it was the first time they were experiencing an emotionally intimate relationship where they were opening up with a therapist and therapy. It's a unique and special experience and people can misinterpret the feelings of having emotional intimacy and trust with someone, maybe even for the first time. And especially if it's of, you know, a sex that they're attracted to, um, that can all feel super mixed up for them, that someone is making them feel good in an appropriate way. But for them, it might be interpreted because of past experiences and relationships as, is this more than just a therapeutic relationship. Right. And so that, that's kind of the basis for all of this too. Right. And then there are cl- some clients that come in that, you know, not just female males and females across this, the, the sex spectrum that for, for various reasons may very well have been using sex as a commodity or using their mm-hmm. bodies as a commodity mm-hmm. or using relationships as a commodity through their lives. And, you know, generally that ends up being very problematic for them in the long run when they're trying to establish, you know, healthy relationships and healthy boundaries with their partners. And then what, now all this stuff gets woken up in the therapeutic relationship Right, And there's this urge of like, oh, well, this is the way I'm supposed to show affection or I'm supposed to show how much I trust somebody is by giving this to them. And that's really usually deeply rooted in something that happened, you know, previously in their life. Yeah. Just, just think of Will Ferrell and Step Brothers, which we covered in our Therapist and Entertainment episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So in, in these cases where therapists cross this line with their clients, Perpetrators account for about 4.4% of therapists. So definitely more men than women are on the perpetrator side, 7% of male therapists, while it's about 1.5% of female therapists. When people are in a position where they seek out therapy, they are likely to be unhappy. They're likely to be confused, hurting, frightened. Again, you know, really in a, a, a... a bad place when they come to therapy. That's why they're coming. And they're, they're connecting sometimes with individuals for the the first time. And it can be very confusing and it's up to the therapist to not let that happen and take advantage of it. Um, So in a study where there were 958 clients who had been sexually involved with their therapists, the results showed that The vast majority, obviously, of sexually exploited clients were women, about 88 to 92%. 90% said that they were harmed in some way by the sexual relationship. 80% were harmed when the sexual engagement begins only after the termination of therapy. So it is also a no-no even when therapy has ended to engage in a sexual relationship with your client even if you're not actively seeing them as a client it does not mean you are allowed to do this yeah i mean that's I, i'm glad that you pointed that out because there is a carve out yeah there is and I, is it national or is it just state i i know in the state of california they say if you're going that that it, you cannot have a relationship with a client outside of therapy, and I mean relationship broadly, like a friendship, right? In less than a period of two years, right? After that, it's not advised, but it's not legally actionable 
and it's they frown upon it. Well, and there's something the potential danger. There's some language like, um, and you also can't plan only, for it. You also right, you can't, can't say plan it. we're going to terminate therapy and then we're going to start sweating our bojangles <laughs> off in two years. Um, right. You can't do that. But there's some language where it says like in only very unique circumstances. And I don't even know what the fuck that means. Like you guys end up the last two people on earth, then it's okay. I think or... it's like that barter thing. You know, I just, I can't imagine what that would be either. It, it is vague, I but know. I, but people do it, you know, yeah. like I, I have had clients in the past who have ended therapeutic relationships become friends and it ends up being incredibly disappointing because you know you're now moving into a domain where your therapist that you formerly had this very contained treatment oriented relationship and now it shifted to a friendship where that person is going to be themselves uh-huh. and that can be super jarring for a client like you know a person might be like a really great therapist in the therapy room and be kind of a doofus in real life i mean you know right right kind of idolized in a unrealistic way as a therapist maybe and right not such a wonderful friend right you're also not allowed to become a therapist of anyone you've previously had a sexual relationship with that's a hard no so that's that's one that um so yeah, if somebody walks so if somebody walks into your office to do an intake and you realize like you know you had a chance or a casual encounter with them 30 years ago does not matter how much time has passed you can't nope. that's a no no you yeah. have to refer them out yeah definitely um about 11% of those clients studied required hospitalization um, 14% attempted suicide, about 1% actually completed suicide. Um, so this is interesting. Their histories, 10% of them had experienced rape prior to sexual involvement with their therapist. So now we're looking at their history of trauma, which angers me so much. I know because I know. that's another example of being taken advantage of. Absolutely. And the therapist has to not has to know this. I mean, but it's likely Most that likely, they know yeah. about this. Um, almost a third had a history of child sex abuse or had been a victim of incest, wow. which is a huge amount. That's it's frightening. Um, and about 5% of these clients were minors at the time of the sexual abuse by their therapist. I, I just, that's a whole nother level. I mean, that's, I I it's, I can't even wrap my brain around that. Well, except yeah. that I can because that's a perpetrator. That's like that's a whole well, other thing, right? You're, like you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and of those that said that they were harmed by these interactions, only 17% feel like they fully recovered. You know, I I don't know how that was measured in this study. But. Yeah, that seems like that was kind of vague. I mean, what would be the rubric for what they consider recovery? But I think it's important that that question was asked and the respondents were given a chance to to give mm-hmm. that answer. I think yeah. that's important. Yeah, it's definitely going to be subjective anyway. Thank you for listening to this fantastic show on the Crawl Space Media Network. We want to talk to you about another show on the Crawl Space Media Network. 
If you like true crime, we've got something a little bit different for you with Empty Frames. We cover art crime, and mostly an art heist that happened in Boston, Massachusetts in 1990. Not any heist, Tim. We're talking about the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist that happened on March 18, 1990, and it is considered to be the most successful and valuable heist in history. That's right. Those nasty thieves stole works from Vermeer, Degas, and Rembrandt, and there is currently a $10 million reward for the return of the stolen artwork. Not a single piece of evidence has ever been retrieved from this heist, so dive into this mystery with us in Season 1. And in Season 2, we tackle other art crimes and other moments in art culture. We chat with the owners of an antique store who found that famous stolen de Kooning painting. We discuss a stolen da Vinci with our good friend Turbo Paul Hendry. And in season three, we dive back into the Gardner heist. That's right. We open the doors back up to the Gardner heist in season three, and we even introduce a brand new theory that is very far removed from the current local mobsters in organized crime theory. So subscribe on Stitcher Premium on Spotify, YouTube, or Apple Podcasts to listen to Empty Frames, an art crime experience. Welcome back, folks. So our first example of an egregious, egregious, egregious uh, mistake is Dr. Lawrence Christensen, a female former client of Dr. Lawrence Christensen, who was a Portland psychologist, successfully sued him for $2 million this past May, alleging that he had sexually abused her for more than three years while she was his patient. So the client reported that Dr. Christian initiated and escalated increasingly physical contact with her over the three-year period, starting with holding her hands, sitting beside her on the couch, embracing her, all of this leading to eventual uh, intercourse. Oh, God. There's so much head shaking in this I know. Episode. Like the, the visuals were just like... were. <laughs> My yeah. headphones are just back and forth. I, exactly. So, and then what makes it even worse is this particular client that we're not going... She, like, uh, her, her name is out there, but I just don't feel like it's appropriate to no. use her name. She sought out therapy to address her childhood history of being sexually abused. Um, her marriage relationship challenges and other interpersonal relationship issues that were sequelae from her abuse as a child. And even though at the beginning of therapy, um, she reported that she felt safe initially that Dr. Christensen had a sympathetic ear. She then stated also that the discomfort began when he started sharing intimate details of his own life. There you go. Right. That's how it's starting. Yep. So um, following the development of their physical relationship, the client reported that Christensen pressured her not to report his behavior to anyone. This is our special secret. Um, That's my own words, but (laughs) I'm using that. I'm using those terms, our special secret, because it's going to parallel to what you and I have talked about in the past. And uh, this client agreed to keep it under wraps until 2018 when they began to see a new therapist. I think this is really important because seeing a new therapist often is like the bucket of ice water that gets thrown on them so that they wake up to reality of like, this is not only, this is really bad. Like this is really bad. And this might be, in this case, we don't know what it is, but I do know in anecdotally and working with clients who've been in this position, they say that they were certainly not comfortable sharing the fact of where that previous relationship went with any of their close friends, their family members. But if they are brave enough to go back into therapy, that opens up the opportunity for them to speak about it. Yep. 
So investigation started. Um, it was revealed that Dr. Christensen had previously been disciplined for inappropriate contact with another client back in 20, uh, 2007. And after ceasing his practice in 2017, he admitted that he had violated boundaries either verbally or physically with four different patients between 2004 and 2018. And his license was uh, revoked in 2018, and he was fined by the state for $40,000. And probably, I, I can't determine whether or not the insurance paid out to her, but likely it would. I mean, that, that, is, another, right. that is another reality of our field is you have to have liability insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I He should have ho- to pay for all those people to go to therapy for the rest of their lives. I agree. I like agree. Great. And and never be able to work. I mean, his license was revoked, but, you know, you can sometimes states don't necessarily communicate with each other very well. And so he he might have the opportunity to move to another state. But who knows what he's doing now? Don't really care. (laughs) Don't really care. Um, One other example I wanted to give real quick that I talk about a lot. Um, but I haven't really given a background on him that I think is very important is another psychiatrist, very famous guy named Dr. Keith Abloh. And Dr. Abloh has been what we call a talking head on Fox News for years. Um, he tends to be politically right. Um, I will say I have read several of his books prior to all of this coming out, he is a very good writer. And I think mm. that clinically he's really astute or he has an editor who was clinically astute. Mm-hmm. Um, he is a regular, or he was a contributor to Fox news until basically all this scandal uh, broke and a very prolific author with well-regarded books, such as uh, living the truth, transform your life through the power of insight and honesty. Um, Trump Your Life, 25 Lessons from the Ups and Downs of the 45th President of the United States, Hmm. Inside the Mind of Casey Anthony, a Psychological Portrait. Um, Now, those three examples, I mean, first of all, I think it's just empower, transfer your life through the power of insight and honesty is just like such an ironic choice of a title given what you got in trouble for um and then i only want to even touch the trump thing why we don't even need to but inside the anthony wow well inside the the spectrum there yeah inside the mind of casey anthony he got in a lot of trouble too for doing he was making a lot of assumptions and a lot of diagnostic uh, uh, assumptions about Casey Anthony, which you're really not supposed to do, especially right. actually you and I Shiloh are not necessarily constrained by that, but the federal law that chides this kind of thing happening is really only geared towards uh, psychiatrists. And I oh, only recently discovered that, that it's only geared towards psychiatrists, but mm-hmm. we should be really careful. Yeah. Um, Dr. Abloh also is a prolific fiction writer. And interestingly enough, some of his titles are singular words. I, these are even, even more. I thought I hit the height of irony before, but this even goes <laughs> even more. Compulsion, Denial, Projection, and Psychopath. Are Those are the names, names of Those his novels? Those are names of four of his novels. <laughs> so three female accusers recently reached out-of-court settlements regarding Dr. Keith Abloh. All three women alleged that they had traveled from out-of-state to go to Massachusetts, where Dr. Abloh has his clinic in Newburyport. They were coming because he is a provider of a relatively new and relatively controversial 
but promising treatment for severe depression. And it is a medically induced treatment protocol using an anesthetic called ketamine. And ketamine has been around in the medical community for a very long time. It's somewhat controversial, but it's been found very effective in some patients for treatment of chronic and severe depression. But initially, it was uh, used in the veterinary field as an animal tranquilizer. Right. There's a myth about it being a horse tranquilizer that's not really myth because it was a horse tranquilizer, but it's basically been used in all animals. Right. And it's also was huge in the gay community back in the eighties and nineties in the rave circuit and the circuit yeah, party. A rave drug. Yeah. Called special K. So all three of these women went in to get these treatments. And this is not, I mean, he had many, this was a, a very high end full practice that he had in Newburyport. And I believe he had several locations. He, they alleged that he charged them for the therapy during the meetings that which they had sex. Oh. So it's not only like he was having sex with them on the side. It was like, Oh, this is part of our therapy. I'm going to have sex with you after you've taken this drug. And I'm, now I'm going to charge you for it. Holy shit. Right. Wow. And then during the course of the sexual activities, the women allege that Ablo used a belt adorned with a skull-shaped buckle to beat them and made such statements as, I own you and you're my slave. Whoa. And one of the women asserted that she had Ablo's uh, Facebook name tattooed on her inner forearm. <gasps> Yeah. No way. This is so, outrageous. I know. Like, you know, I remember he's at drugging the them. He's, uh, right. Charging I mean, them. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. I don't know what would piss me off more. Like you drugged me or you charged me for it. Like, right. In May of 2019, um, a separate medical malpractice case uh, was settled against him before going to trial. And that was where a 55 year old antiques dealer from Cape Cod accused Ablo of crossing therapeutic boundaries by engaging personal communications by email and text outside of their sessions. And Dr. Ablo was assisted her and was somewhat insistent that she should open a store in Newburyport um, that would benefit him some way. Like it would be an investment wow. opportunity for him to sell antiques and his uh, treatment suggestion or protocol for one of her issues in therapy was he encouraged her to have an affair by posting a profile on Ashley Madison and Ashley oh, Madison Jesus. was a huge deal a few years ago because it's a, a, a website basically set up for expressly for married people to have affairs. Right. So it's not just a hookup site, like any other hookup site that's out there or app it's for people who are looking to cheat. Right. So thought that was wow, very interesting. What a gem this guy is. Jeez. Yeah. I mean, so I believe his medical license has been rescinded. I mean, he's probably going to reinvent himself in some way. Be very yeah. interesting to see what happens. Um, did you, can you talk a little bit about psychologists and media? Yeah. I, you know, it's so interesting, especially just with like the work that you and I are doing now and this concept of talking heads. Yeah. Um, you know, going back to to grad school and, and my ethics professor, she really kind of drilled into us that most talking heads out there are not really worth their weight in their field, that they're they're sort of making stuff up on the fly. It's a lot of conjecture. They they really are talking out of their ass when they shouldn't, to put it 
you know, lightly. Um, so I've always had sort of this adverse reaction, especially when, you know, you, you put it in the term talking heads. Um, but I think, I think that's changed a little bit. I think it can be done well and it can be done ethically. And, you know, I kind of see that there's a spectrum, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. If we were to engage in, you know, maybe some, some media where they're asking for expertise or for um, commentary on a certain case or something um, obviously psychologically based, which you and I do when we're guests on other people's shows, you know, they might be asking specifically about a certain case or a certain offender or something like that. We can do that and still abide by all of our guidelines and ethics and just our own moral compass of what we think we should say. And, and we usually give them a disclaimer, like, look, we can't diagnose this person. We can't make, you know, um, too much assertion about what's going on with them because we don't have all the facts, you know, we, we can't, and there are plenty of people out there who will. So, you know, I kind of see them as like these professional advice characters sometimes. Um, and then there's people who really have, you know, sort of the, the bona fides to back it up too, that have yeah. the good well, expertise in the area and actual applied knowledge, working knowledge in the area. Right. I think it's gotten, I agree with you. I think it's gotten better than it used to be. Um, one of the differences between the opportunities that we have had so far when we've been on other people's podcasts is that I would say probably 99.999% of the times that you and I have guested, it's basically just been open dialogue. Right. So that means that the listener is able to, you know, if they're listening to the whole thing or bits and pieces, they're getting that there's a context of what we're talking about. And many times what you'll see in some of these talking head shows or shows that use talking heads is that they will just get certain statements from that talking head and use it. And I'm not always sure that that person actually were, are, you know, I always go, well, did they really represent what she was saying? Sure. You know, I don't think that I haven't seen anything hugely egregious lately, but I think that for anybody out there that's listening to this, if you ever have the opportunity to be in that position, you'd really need to be damn sure that you talk directly to the producer and you say, just, we need to understand that I have final approval of what you're representing me saying. Yeah. And if they won't give that to you, I think you should be really careful about whether or not you commit to it. Definitely. Yeah. It's, it's on you to realize that you're taking that risk. Should you be doing something sort of pre-taped or that's going to be edited down? Um, So people I think of as talking heads, psychologists, like classics, I think of like Dr. Laura. um, I think of Dr. (laughs) Who's not a psychologist. (laughs) I know. And so that's the thing. Like, that's what, you know, I encourage people to think about when they're hearing these like professional advice givers with the doctor in front of their name to think about, you know, think about, okay, doctor of what? Dr. Laura has her PhD in physiology. She did go on to become um, a marriage and family therapist and have a private practice. And she had a, a certification out of state, not from California, even though she did go to USC, I believe. 
And Dr. Ruth, sex therapist, she had a doctor in education, which a lot of psychologists do have a doctor in education. And she was a postdoc researcher in a hospital, professor, author, like legit. But yeah, what are they a doctor of? Are they practicing? Do they actually do this? Or are they just read a bunch of books and went to school and that's it? Like, what's their experience really like? Be wary of the term psychotherapist. Psychotherapist is really this big umbrella term for any professional who is trained in some capacity to treat people for their emotional problems. So psychotherapist is a huge red flag. My husband, like now he knows when it says psychotherapist on a television show under their name, he's like, oh, that person's not licensed. (laughs) They're not a doctor. I'm like, probably not. Well, I mean, you can't, I don't think you can. I mean, in California, you can't call yourself a psychotherapist unless you were licensed at, at minimum, the master's level. You can call yourself a counselor. You can be a certified alcohol and drug counselor. Yeah. Or you can get an online uh, divinity certificate, you know, like go to that uh, universal life church and get ordained and then Uh call yourself a spiritual counselor. Sure. And charge as sure. much money as you want. But that you have to say spiritual counseling. You can't say psychotherapy. But interestingly enough, I mean, the Dr. Laura example is particularly challenging because I, I listened to a handful of her shows and she was so demeaning to the women that would call in. I mean, she would be one step away from calling them whores. Yeah. I mean, it was like, yeah. and that would be something a therapist regardless you would never call a client that you would never frame it in those terms well you wouldn't take that approach you wouldn't be abrasive like that um so it was a shtick it was a you know it was a entertainment segment well it's entertainment for some people it's and it's and some people are under the misguided perception that they're getting therapy through that so right right i'm glad her star has fallen somewhat yeah, but then you have someone like Dr. Judy Ho, who's on the the Doctors, the TV show The Doctors. Definitely a media personality. Visually appears very Hollywood, but she's triple board certified. She's a forensic psychologist, neuropsychologist. Her, I've looked up her CV. It is she's the real deal. Legit, a ton of books. You know, associate professor at Pepperdine, one of the best universities for psychology in Southern California. Uh, Some people just really hit it out of the park and are capable. I don't know. She must clone herself. I don't know how she does all of this, but she's definitely one of those that has the goods to back it up. But yeah, that's a little bit about talking heads. We can see where this one with Dr. Abloh went uh, terribly wrong. Yeah, that that went really badly. So the, the case that I wanted to offer up as well is one that is very recently in the news, Michelle Boudreau-Deegan. That's a, she's a mental health clinician. She's a PsyD, so that's a doctorate. Um, there are two types of psychological doctorates or psych degree doctorates. There's a PsyD and a PhD. She's licensed in Washington State, and she fatally shot her seven-year-old twin daughters in their sleep after drugging them heavily with uh, prescription medication and allegedly in response to a custody dispute with her ex-husband over the children. Michelle had a mental health history, according to interviews with her friends. And on October 24th, 2020, about 1.15 p.m., the sheriff's department in Sudden Valley, Washington, was notified that that someone had not been heard from for several days. So the crime is thought to have occurred sometime on Friday evening, the day before, on the 20th. So So literally a week ago, like this, I, I... 
this is crazy. I didn't even hear, hear about this yet. Well, a month ago. I mean, it's a month. It's, oh, a month ago. Sorry. Yeah. What what day is it? But oh, still, my. this is, I mean, talk about current. So following the final judgment of shared custody that happened on October 20th, 2020, Michelle had asserted some suicidal ideation to friends and colleagues. And the investigators currently believe that this was the primary motive between the filicide, the murder-suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, however, Michelle's professional Facebook page is sadly already flooded with thousands of posts, some that are really disrespectful to just the situation. I mean, regard it's, it's a terrible thing that happened, not letting anybody off the hook, but do something better with your time than, you know, shit posting on on someone's yeah, professional page. There's already conspiracy theories that women never use guns to kill themselves. So it must have oh, been Jesus. husband and he set the whole thing up. And it's one of those where I just like went, oh, I'm gonna back away from this page. I just and I wished somebody had shut the page down. But you know, yeah. that's a very hard thing to do in social media these days unless you assign someone to that responsibility. And thankfully that theory does not appear to be gaining any traction with law enforcement. On the day, this is really sad and ironic, but on the day of the crime, she posted on her professional Facebook page an article that had been posted on a mommy blog called Scary Mommy. Um, I, I read a lot of stuff. Scary Mommy actually does have some really great stuff posted. The article is entitled, Narcissistic Parents Are Literally Incapable of Loving Their Children. Mm-hmm. Oh. I, and there's, I mean, we could peel that apart on a number of ways, but an individual reported to be a friend of Michelle's described her as mentally ill and mentally unstable. And neighbors in the area said that they rarely saw the twin daughters outside the home, even though there was shared custody. Uh, it looks like also Michelle was had a border in her home as well. Like there was, she was renting out a room to someone mm-hmm. who, uh, was finally came home after being gone for a couple of days and responded to all these other people saying, where is Michelle? There was a friend of hers, Jen Midland, who uh, had been a friend of hers, Michelle's for years. And she described her. Michelle was a wonderful woman. She had to have been trying in an absolutely sick, unimaginably twisted way, obviously to protect the girls from a life with their dad without her. Every time she believed that her divorce was almost final, she would be dragged into a new frivolous and expensive renegotiation. She had bankrupted herself by litigation, right or wrong. She worried for her girls with their dad. And that this was a mental health tragedy. She's not a terrible person. So interesting. I mean, it's it's horrible. It's horrible. It's sad. I feel for everyone. But I do want to point something out that we have talked about in our familicide episodes about fathers Mm -hmm. who have engaged in murder suicides. And not in any of those cases did anybody say this was a mental health tragedy, not a terrible person. Nope. And I'm not saying that Michelle's a terrible person. I'm just saying that, like, that's an example of a very strange double standard. And I'm not diminishing michelle's pain by any by any means i'm just saying that we need to look at it we need to look at these things committed by men as well even if they're asserting violence like i'm you know i'm gonna ruin your life by killing our kids that's a mental health issue because people in their right mind don't do that they're both they're all mental health tragedies to some extent we can't just say that men are doing it from an evil place and women are mentally ill. Right. And so, I mean, the ironic part of that too, is that the article that she posted about can narcissists, you know, narcissists can't really love their kids is that inherently 
taking action to this extent is ultimately the most narcissistic thing you could do. Right. You know, the idea that your children are not autonomous individuals that have the right to live their own life as adults, but rather you're going to be the one to protect them from their life without you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's not like she was going to be completely out of their lives either. I mean, right. It was shared custody. It's um, her professional page is still up. Her uh, psychology today profile is still up. Uh, It's just incredibly sad altogether. And, you know, we'll, we'll follow this. There may be some more things that come up uh, from the investigation that we could talk about on our get vocal. Yeah. All right. But since we're staying uh, recent. Yes. Can Let me talk in? about Nancy. Yeah, talk about Nancy. So, you know, we've we've done an episode on cults. We've obviously, like, talked about it here and there, and cults aren't super fascinating to me. But I did watch The Vow on HBO about Nexium, and what stood out to me and really angered me was this woman, Nancy Salzman, who is the president and co-founder of Nexium, because... I believe she referred to herself, but then her daughter also referred to her as a therapist, especially when she was trying to connect to other people. She would say, oh, my mom's a therapist as well. And then a lot of the therapeutic techniques um, that she, Nancy, had been trained in were used as part of the manipulation and the recruitment of new members into Nexium. So I saw that as incredibly manipulative. I'm glad we did this topic because I said I need to dive deeper into what Nancy's background is, which, spoiler spoiler alert, it is very cryptic. I could not find a lot at all, even at this point. So That and, doesn't and make sense because you should she should be licensed yeah. somewhere if she's a therapist. Right, right. So I'll tell you what I do have. Um let me tell you a little bit. I know no one that's listening here lives under a rock, but Nexium was formed in the 90s. Um, and it is basically an, an MLM that kind of fronted itself as a, a professional development seminar and coaching uh, foundation that has been described as a cult <laughs> and then sort of morphed into a recruiting platform for what turned out to be a secret society called DOS, dominant over submissive, in which women were branded and forced into sexual slavery with um, the the um, other co-founder, Keith Ranieri. So we know psychological manipulation is huge when we talk about cults. Um, I am just continue to be disgusted that this woman helped develop this. However, after doing my research, I feel a little bit better not, you know, knowing now that it's not like she was this trained therapist and um, working out in the world closer to what Dr. Scott and I are doing. I feel like I have a little bit of a buffer from her now that I know. That she's, because she's a fraud. Because she's like basically, feel, basically feel, yeah, a fraud. Yeah, got it. yeah. So, um, but in 97, she joins forces with Keith Ranieri in developing the executive success programs. Um, and she's really one of the head teachers. She's the, the face of it on all of the videos and introduction videos. And they, you know, they refer to Keith Ranieri as Vanguard. They refer to her as prefect, oh, which is sort of like second in command, chief officer, magistrate, um, 
I think in the UK, it, it means like a senior student who can dole out punishment, almost like a hall monitor. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, in, know, Harry, like that, right? in Harry Potter, that was one of the things Percy, Percy Weasley wants to be prefect. There you go. Thank you for that, Scott. Tying I have to it give a Harry together. Potter. Yeah. <laughs> if it's not Broadway, it's Harry Potter. It's Harry Potter. But essentially, she had a huge hand in shaping the behavioral programs that form the basis of Nexium that basically over 16,000 people participated. So these are all the lives that she touched. Um, in articles, she is referred to as a former psychiatric nurse. So she had her nursing license um, in the state of New York between 1983 until it expired last year in 2019. Oh, wow. Yes. So as we know, psychiatric nurses are basically experts in crisis intervention, mental health assessment, medication and therapy, and, and basically assisting patients. They're working closely with patients to help them manage mental illnesses and, you know, live fulfill, fulfilling lives in usually in concert with, you know, whether it's a psychiatrist or um, multidisciplinary team, if they're working out of a clinic, right. you work very close with a lot of psychiatric nurses that help you. And they're, they're wonderful, very talented uh, mental health professionals. Um, but they're not therapists in the way where they're conducting therapy. Like they're not doing long-term therapy as in sitting down with someone and talking with them about their talk therapy or any of the other modalities that Scott and I talk about. So it's, it's interesting. She's got this psychiatric nurse piece. However, I, I couldn't find like anywhere where she actually worked, but she did have a license that was good until last year in New York, which is where she's been living and where Nexium was, was based out of. So... There were in Nexium, though, these EM sessions that she would hold and that others who she trained would then hold, and it stands for Exploration of Meaning. And a lot of times it was done, especially in the training, like up in front of the audience at the seminar, but then there would be private sessions done, very similar to like auditing in Scientology. Right. That's exactly what it sounded like. But you can you can see a lot of like traditional kind of therapeutic skills being used when you watch the vow and because there's all this footage of it that was documentary footage that was being taken that was used in the vow and and you can really see where she probably took all of those skills that she had learned as a psychiatric nurse and it felt very invasive it felt like they're sitting up there in front of this whole group of people conducting a therapy session essentially which is something so, else we would you would never do. I mean, like you might role play a therapy session, like that's done at con conventions a lot, like and yeah, uh, teaching seminars. So we'll get somebody like, okay, this is play this scenario of a couple, and mm -hmm. you know use this technique, but you don't go for the you don't do real therapy, right? And right, and this is what it was. You know, these are the students. These are these are the people wanting to learn more about themselves, to make themselves better personally and professionally, and they were doing it sort of live. Um, but she's also supposedly an expert in NLP, which is neuro linguistic programming, which is so interesting because when I go to look into this, I'm like, am I am I being sucked into a cult right now? Not sucked into it. Am I reading about it because? This makes no sense on the page. Every website yeah. I went to about NLP, um, 
basically it's it's a psychological approach that involves analyzing strategies used by successful people and applying them to yourself to reach a personal goal but it relates to thoughts language and patterns of behavior There's <laughs> one not tagline a, yeah one tagline on a website said it's like learning the language of your own mind <laughs> well, well <what? laughs> that's a little vague i think i would say that if anybody wanted to kind of do a, a, a an interesting sort of overview. Their Wikipedia page is really good because Wikipedia, um, one of the writers that's contributed heavily to a lot of psych issues on that forum, pretty much comes up and says like, "There's no statistical veri- valid nope. verification validation of uh, NLP." I like the idea of NLP because it has a basis in a lot in cognitive behavioral therapy. It's just packaged in kind of woo woo stuff. Yes. And I exactly. think that there's actually some interventions in NLP that can be therapeutically quite helpful, but as a whole, I mean, it's all, it's, I mean, it's kind of like fake it till you make it like, Oh, mm-hmm. this is the way this, this successful person acts in this way. And they don't use these kind of words. So we should all be use these kind of words. Well, there's a, an actual legit therapeutic perspective on that, which is not using sort of problem saturated narratives or using negative self-talk about yourself, which can be incredibly right. challenging in your personal development. So there's some good things about it. And like, they also, but yeah, I, I agree. It's like nobody's actually kind of grinding down, trying to statistically validate whether or not that's a legit form of treatment. Well, it, it's the limitations of it are listed as like it's difficult to define. It's so eclectic that, um, you know, there's no evidence-based research to back it up as a form of therapy. So I do, I, I think what you're saying is that it's like someone has repackaged cognitive behavioral therapy to be able to use it in a setting, but not be a trained a thera- a, a, therapist. A, a, right. Oh, interesting. Right. Okay. So I can package this and use it with, you know, as a professional self-help seminar or like a workshop with a big corporation or something like that. And that's exactly what she was doing when Keith Raniere met her. She was actually, she's also an expert in hypnosis, which she was teaching workshops for big companies when she met Keith Raniere. And he was really excited about her ability to instantly engage a crowd and her ability to be able to hypnotize them. Oh, I bet he was. Oh, yeah, you think? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the, all of this is likely the underlying foundation and basis for controlling members of Nexium. Cult expert Steve Hassan said he talked to several people who have zero recollection of their first meetings with Keith Raniere that would be like two to four hours long. So, you know, the idea is that Keith and um, Nancy we're using these techniques one-on-one with people in these these meetings where they believe like the suggestibility piece was coming in as well as the suggestibility piece of of not remembering what they were actually talking about Ugh, you to know, get them looped in and it was all a money maker i mean yeah. thousands of dollars for these seminars oh yeah i mean they yeah they they made tons of money cuz they also their goal was to reach out to wealthy people like you know they use their star power with allison mack and a couple of other high ranking people but i gotta tell you just like we talked about in our cult episode where i was approached by one of the big cult leaders in west hollywood and back in the late 80s 
I, the first minute I saw Keith Ranieri, I was like, so I got a visceral gross out reaction just looking at him and absolutely astounded at the adoration with which people looked at him. Oh my gosh. That scene with him and Allison Mack, the first time she meets him is so stomach churning. (laughs) I, and I, I don't even know how to describe it. She's so enamored with him and she just met him and he's so gross. Well, okay. So I, I, yeah, I agree. He's beyond gross. Um, I will say this not, and I'm not going like, I'm not diagnosing. I'm just going to say (laughs) having worked with people in the entertainment industry, especially performers, Mm -hmm. there is an affective experience that is performative. Sure. Like this, this is the commodity through which they have made their lives. You know, Allison came from like hardly any jobs, onto a show that lasted almost a decade Mm -hmm. that created a character and made her more and more like she, she did a good job in that show. It was a really fun show. And, you know, I think that this is something that maybe we can do another episode on, which is child actors is that there's a real, a real phenomenon of child actors reaching adulthood and missing vital parts of their identity because their experience was so rarefied with adulation and yeah i mean we'll have to do that we'll do one on stage moms or stage parents oh god in the future that'd be actors and that would be all so great and yeah and when i say keith ranieri's gross like i don't mean (laughs) just physically i mean like his affect and like clearly seeing through the television and i know sitting on my couch watching this knowing how it all ends just thinking how deliberate his the words coming out of his mouth are and the the manipulation. I also think there was a group think that occurs in like in many, mm-hmm. in many cults is nobody wanted to be the one that questioned him. You know, sure. when he, when he starts writing on a whiteboard, this complete bullshit equation that even right. me, that's like, I'm barely functional in math. Right. And I, I know he's making shit up, you uh-huh. know? but I think <laughs> that when you're in a group like that, nobody wants to say, Hey, the emperor doesn't have any clothes. Right. You know, so right. it only reinforces his narcissistic position there. Yeah. And those that did are just incredibly brave to me. Um, so as being co-founder of Nexium, you know, she takes, she has all this expertise and what it's, you know, sort of foundationally built on as far as their behavioral programs. Also, she's going to, she was ended up being accused of their, the organization's criminal enterprise, essentially, but she was accused of identity theft and altering records to influence the outcome of a civil lawsuit against the organization. In March of 2018, federal agents raid her house. I believe it was right after Keith Ranieri and Allison Mack were arrested. They seize $523,000 in cash from her home. Ooh. She so she was earning a salary of about two hundred thousand dollars a year. She got this beautiful home paid for. She had a a close budget of uh, forty thousand dollars a year. So she was doing quite well for herself, which yes. I'm sure is motivation to con- continue in this behavior. But March of last year, 2019, she ended up pleading guilty to charges of conspiracy racketeering. She admitted to interfering with essentially Nexium's perceived enemies. She stole passwords, email passwords of people who were thought to oppose Nexium. She altered tapes of herself teaching courses that were going to be used in a lawsuit 
against a cult deprogrammer, Rick Ross. She, when she pled guilty at her hearing, I, I just wanted to read a couple of her quotes because I think they're interesting. She says, I accept that some of what I did was not just wrong, but criminal. If I could go back and do it all over again, I would, but I can't. I believe that we would be helping people. I compromised my principles. So I'm talking about ethics and principles and things like that. It has taken me some time and some soul searching to come to this place, which if you had to soul search for all the wrong that you did, then clearly that's problematic. Clearly. It's pretty obvious. Clearly. Um, I still believe some of what we did was good. So it's like this holding on to, uh, she has to hold on to a piece that feels like it was beneficial to those people. She can't even well, admit it's a complete oh. bullshit apology or it's a it's a bullshit admonition. It's like, yes, there were some things that were done wrong, but look at all the good we did. Mm -hmm. It's like and, you know, if that was. You know, if that was like what the doctors in New Orleans during Katrina had to do, like they had to make oh. decisions, life yeah. and death decisions. You know, that's a very different thing. And even like one of the one of the doctors was brought up on charges and uh, right. and eventually exonerated. She was in this horrific position of having to make these terrible life and death decisions. Saltzman's not anywhere near that. Like you're no. not making, you know, you you've got. And let me tell you also, that's also very indicative of a criminal. I, I would think a criminal mindset is having that much cash on hand in your home. Because oh, I that, agree. to me, is an indicator that she knew that shit was going to hit the fan at some point and she was going to ha may have to disappear. Right. Or you're so not I, wanting to put in the bank what you have because is that going to raise you got to pay taxes neglect? on it. Well, that too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Come on. Half a million dollars in cash. Jesus. But yeah, you know, there's, there's no acknowledgement of the damage that's done to people in these statements. Now, uh, uh, this isn't the full statement. I, d I don't know what the rest of the statements were, but these were just so it's just like, she can't even give a, a more bullshit acceptance speech of yes, what I did was wrong. That's it. Like she has to throw in the minimizers, the carve out for things. herself. Yes. Like I'm yes, not a bad yes. person. The language yeah. is so interesting. Um, she's still awaiting sentencing. So we know Keith Ranieri has already been sentenced. Um, so we're still waiting for Nancy Salzman and um, Allison Mack to get their sentences. The charge of racketeering conspiracy carries a sentence of 20 years. And um, the identity theft stuff is a max of 15 years. So, and not just her, like her daughter was one of the top DOS people. She basically, um, for the, the women, the Secret Society of Women who are being branded and having to sleep with Keith, her daughter wrote the handbook to, literal handbook to DOS. So she had been heavily involved in it as well. But... She's a piece of work. Um, I yeah. don't know how much, you know, as far as calling herself a therapist, you know, that could be, that could refer to hypnotherapist. Um, it could be how she sort of categorized herself as a psychiatric nurse and helping people. But it seems like a fraudulent statement to make to me as far as labeling yourself as a therapist. Yeah. I mean, when we talk about behavioral drift, I don't think this was behavioral drift. This is somebody who clearly had no problem no compunction with going along right. you're you're allowing you're allowing yourself to be engaged in an organization that propagates 
women as second-class citizens to become parts of a harem Mm -hmm. for Ranieri, including body modification, and then not being honest with the women about what that brand means. I mean, there's just so many ways that we could pull this apart. Yeah, Yeah. I have, I hope, I hope they throw the book at her. I hope they throw the book at Allison Mack and... And he, I mean, clearly he's never getting out, which is great, but. Right, right. But I think it comes down to money, power, and ego for her. I mean, there's almost horrible something, things to do to other women. I mean, he's a, he's a psychopath, clearly. Yeah. What I would say about her that's even more disappointing is that she knew better. She had enough of an education and a training oh, yeah. to know better and chose right. I don't to see go her... against the ethics of her d- discipline. Yeah, I, I definitely see a difference between her and even Allison Mack, where it's not like she started off as a victim and being manipulated into this right. this organization. She helped start it knowing very well that this trickery of behavioral programming that she knew was going to result in this. Right. And that's just, that's unforgivable. I mean, it's right. awful. She's ruined so many people's lives. Um, wow. But wow. Okay. So we can dish it out to therapists too, can't we? We can. We can hold our, and... we can hold our, our <laughs> discipline accountable and we will continue. <laughs> we had a couple of examples we couldn't get to today. I think that because they involved, uh, there's a couple of that involved children that I want to mm-hmm. lump into another episode coming up. Um, but yep. we're really excited. We've got some stuff coming up live or get vocal. You, well, yeah. you have a couple of really cool things to talk about that we have coming up. They're well, so this, great. So this coming Get Vocal, December 5th, please tune in. I'm I'm super, super excited for this. Um, one of my favorite podcasts, the Tennis Podcast, Nick and Brandon are going to be on our Get Vocal. And if you have not listened to them, please do. Please subscribe. They're hilarious. Um, I would call them like a pop culture comedy podcast. But essentially every week, one of the guys brings a top 10 ish list and the other guy has to guess it like he doesn't know what the topic is going to be so for us nick and i are collaborating on a top 10 list and scott you and brandon have to guess the list so you don't have to do any work to prep to show up it's awesome. going to be true crime themed but we have our our top 10 list we will leave it as a complete surprise for you guys so you can't do any googling before, beforehand <laughs> and i will, um, will and i i commit that i will not as much as i am so in love <laughs> with my my uk wife esther I will not look at all the, I'll not look at the chat pane because I know people are going to figure it out before I do. Oh, probably. You'll have to have some discipline on that for sure. Yeah. But, um, but it'll be super fun it, and it'll be full of factoids as well, because we'll talk about each one of the things slash people on our list. Um, it'll be a ton of fun. So I'm, I'm so happy to collaborate with them because I just, I, I'm a huge fan. I adore them and they're hilarious. So it will totally be a good time. So and then um yeah and then what else our patreon oh our patreon yes um so scott and i decided to do something a little special for the holidays why not throw a holiday party for patreon members so if you are not a member yet if you sign up by December 17th um we're please do and we are going to have a zoom party for i don't know 
as long as we can hang out at least an hour, right? <laughs> and and just like hang out with you guys for all of our patrons. We we want you to, we want to get to know you, want to like see your faces, we want to just chat and talk and be casual and um so please please join if that sounds interesting to you. Plus you even if you just wanted perks. to join for one month payment and then quit, you're yeah. more, you're more than welcome to. We we want to be careful though because there's been a lot of bombing in Zoom and it's still continuing to this day especially for podcasters. We're getting some Russian yeah, there are some Russians that are dropping into Zoom meetings. So we're going to be careful about it. We'll send out a secure link for those of yeah. that are interested, but Feel free if you want to join for five bucks for one month and then cancel, you're more than welcome to. But we'd love to see everybody. We'll probably have a couple of cocktails within reach while we're talking. Yeah, That'd be great. Exactly. Maybe we'll think up something, some, I don't know. I was like a game that sounds really lame, like the lamest office party. Okay, we're going to play a game now. <laughs> I <laughs> think we could breakers. probably come up with something great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Well, that was fun. Thank you, Scott. I think we went two hours again. We're getting longer. Uh, we need to stop it. I know. We got a, this was dense though. We had a lot of information no, in this. So we don't we're, we're no one needs to feel guilty about breaking it up into bite-sized pieces. Like no, just listen just, to us when just you can. Speed up, speed up um Oh yeah, you know, 1.5. 1. 5 we sound a lot smarter on 1.5 too. I agree. I totally agree <laughs> with that. All right. Thank you guys so much. And uh, we'll see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye-bye. Bye, folks. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network, and each episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our music, entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir, is composed and performed by the amazing Kevin McLeod. It's licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution license. Check out his YouTube channel at handle 1HMNC. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash LA Not So Podcast. Until next time, folks. <laughs>